The Old Testament lesson is from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to reach and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Today's New New Testament lesson is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ 
and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. We know that Daniel was a young man of noble Hebrew descent living in Judah in 605 B.C. That was a year when, in the providence of God, King Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies to lay siege to Jerusalem only to destroy the city and its temple 18 years later in 587. Now, along with a number of Jewish youths, Daniel was taken from his home and family in Judah and exiled to Babylon, where he lived out the balance of his long life as a believer in Yahweh in the capital city of a pagan empire. And although in exile far from home, Daniel rose to such prominence in the Babylonian court that eventually he became a confidant to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, little did Daniel know that the terrible day when he was taken captive and removed from his home and family was just the beginning of an amazing life, a life which, through a series of dreams and visions given him by God, led to the production of a book of the Bible, a book which reveals some of the profound mysteries of God's sovereign plan for human history. And Daniel does this by taking us on a panoramic sweep from Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the coming Messianic age, all the way to the end of time and the day of final judgment. The book of Daniel is also the story of a faithful Jewish exile in a pagan land, serving in a pagan royal court, all the while living his life in such an exemplary way that he may indeed have been used by God during the reign of the Persian king Cyrus in the 530s to help secure the freedom of those Jewish exiles who returned to Jerusalem in a second exodus, as recounted in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The book of Daniel is not only an important guide to redemptive history, it's also the remarkable story of a life lived in exile. Now, we begin this series on the book of Daniel with a word of caution. One of the most capable commentators on the book of Daniel warns us that this book has often defeated even the most skilled of expositors, and that's a warning not to be taken lightly. Now, one reason why Daniel is so difficult to interpret is that Daniel predicts the course of world empires, which were future to him are ancient history for us. And to interpret Daniel correctly, one needs a fair bit of knowledge of ancient Near Eastern history, which most moderns don't have. So covering this ground is hard to do in the context of a typical sermon, and frankly, a sermon should not be a mere history lesson. Yet as we saw in our series on Ezra and Nehemiah, the situation on the ground, so to speak, far too often gets left behind by those interpreters looking for practical application and who instead focus on things like Nehemiah's leadership skills while ignoring the historical circumstances behind the book Circumstances which I think are frankly far more interesting and relevant than turning Nehemiah into an ancient motivational speaker or some sort of strategic business plan expert. We didn't do that in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we can't do that with Daniel if we expect to understand the meaning of his prophecy 
and get something useful from our time spent studying this book. So any series on Daniel will be challenging because even though Daniel will offer us this panoramic vision from Israel's past all the way to the end of time, much of his prophecy has to do with the ancient empires of the ancient Near East, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. From that time of about 600 BC until the coming of Jesus and the dawn of the Messianic Age in the 30s of the first century. And so we'll proceed slowly at the beginning of our series. We'll lay the necessary groundwork, but we'll pick up speed as we go along in the later chapters. Now, another reason Daniel is difficult to interpret is because of the nature of the symbols and the numbers and the dreams associated with apocalyptic visions typical of those found in this prophecy. Now, far too many interpreters of Daniel see the visionary sections here as springboards to all kinds of fanciful, albeit fascinating, end-time scenarios which supposedly foretell of a seven-year tribulation period in which a future Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel, ultimately to betray the nation before the final battle of Armageddon. Now, while Daniel does speak to the time of the end, Christ's second coming, The bulk of the book of Daniel is taken up with events contemporaneous to Daniel's own time and in the centuries following, which do speak primarily to the future of the nation of Israel and the Messianic age, that is, the ministry of Jesus. But Daniel's prophecy does not unfold in the manner so many of us learn from the prophecy pundits who first taught us this book. And therefore, it's important that with a book like this, we do a fair bit of background and introduction And that we ease in slowly. But we don't jump right in with the assumption that this background is boring and that the book is relevant and only makes sense if we use it to discuss end times, not ancient history, and not the history of God's people. Now, the fact is that Christianity is a religion tied to that so-called ancient history. Details we may not know. Frankly, details we may not care to know. Or details, if we admit we once knew, we may have forgotten. But it's God, after all, who chooses to tell the story of our redemption through the life and times of real people who lived a long time ago and who struggled within real world empires long since gone. If the book of Daniel can be boiled down to a single message, it is that God is sovereign over all of history as seen in the fact that Jesus Christ conquers all his enemies and completely redeems his people at the end of time. This is the place that Daniel ultimately will direct us. In fact, the same commentator who warns us of this book often defeating interpreters goes on to say of Daniel, and I'm quoting here, Daniel is seen to stand at the intersection between the Testaments and at the crossroads of history. It is part of the considerable literature that helps bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New, and so provides a necessary preparation for an understanding of the ministry of Jesus. And I think that's exactly right. Now, we know that to be true from our brief consideration of how Jesus understood the book of Daniel in our two-part survey of the Olivet Discourse. The prophet Malachi, writing about 450 B.C., was the last of Israel's prophets before the coming of the Messiah. Nehemiah gave us the last historical report of Israel's history in the mid-400s B.C. until the coming of Jesus, Israel's long-expected Messiah. But Daniel's prophecy, written about 536 B.C., does much to bridge this redemptive historical gap between Israel's Old Testament history and the period which follows until the coming of the Messiah. 
Daniel's prophecy ties what's gone before to that which will follow, this extended trial for Israel, which we commonly speak of as Second Temple Judaism, leading up to the Messianic age, pointing ahead to the culmination of all of history as directed by the sovereign God. So as we ease into Daniel's prophecy, we'll use the balance of our time this morning to look briefly at the date and authorship of Daniel, the structure of his prophecy, as well as Daniel's very intriguing relationship to the Joseph story from Genesis 37, verse 1 through chapter 50, verse 26, before we draw some brief application. Now, the opening two verses of this book connect the book of Daniel to a particular time and place in world history. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Well, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim can be positively dated as 605 B.C., Now, Jehoiakim, we know, came to the throne of Judah in 609, when Judah at that time had become a sort of vassal state of first Egypt and then Babylon. While still a crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar's armies uh, defeated the Egyptian forces in Syria, then came south and laid siege to Jerusalem. And then once king, Nebuchadnezzar would eventually sack and destroy the city, as we saw in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah in 587. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and 2 Kings chapter 24, Jehoiakim was taken in shackles to Babylon in 605 BC, only to return to Judah three years later. And we miss a major theme in Daniel if we overlook his statement in verse 2 that the Lord gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar, along with a number of those vessels from the Jerusalem temple, perhaps as tribute to Judah's new Babylonian suzerains or, or landlords or, or client state of, of Israel being a client state of Babylon, but certainly a declaration from the Babylonians that their God was superior to Yahweh. And the vessels taken from the temple mentioned here are going to figure prominently in Daniel's account in chapter 5 of Belshazzar's act of sacrilege with these same temple vessels and God's immediate judgment upon him. Now, as an aside, Jehoiakim eventually made his way back to Jerusalem, dying in 598 B.C., and his son Jehoiachin replaced him for a time, and by refusing to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, sending them more silver and gold, he set in motion this increasingly hostile relationship that eventually led to Nebuchadnezzar having enough, breaching the city's walls, and destroying both the city of Jerusalem and the temple in 587 an event which takes place while Daniel is already in Babylon as a young protege in the royal court. And so while the book of Daniel gives us this big picture map of redemptive history, at the same time it recounts the life of an exile in a pagan land, a man striving to be faithful to God and God's promises, a struggle which we face as Christians in a hostile and pagan land. Now, the internal evidence within the book points to a single author and a 6th century B.C. Babylonian origin. But to a person, critical scholars reject the 6th century B.C. date for the book of Daniel because 
chapter 11 predicts the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, the brother of Cleopatra. It depicts this in such detail that critics insist that the book of Daniel must have been written shortly after the time of Antiochus or contemporaneously with his desecration of the temple in 163 B.C. Now, since a sermon is no place to spend time refuting a century or more of scholarly debate about the dating of Daniel and its authorship, let me just say that the arguments put forth by critical scholars against the early dating of Daniel are surprisingly weak and not grounded in any evidence except in the presupposition that nobody can foretell the future with such accuracy. So Daniel had to be written after or while the temple was being desecrated during this Maccabean revolt or uprising of the 160s B.C. But all of the conservative commentaries, the scholarly ones, and the Old Testament introductions that introduce us to the history of these books do a great job of refuting the critical view and very capably prove Daniel's early date, 6th century B.C., single authorship, one hand, the man identifies himself as Daniel, wrote this book, as well as Babylonian origins. Whoever wrote it was very familiar with the daily doings of the Babylonian royal court. Now, we know when Daniel was taken captive in exile, 605. That's a pretty concrete date. But we also know the approximate time of his death, which is at some point after 537 B.C., because according to Daniel 10, verse 1, he lives until at least the third year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, which makes the prophet at least 80 years of age. Now, the dating of Daniel is very important to us because each of the chapters correspond to concrete dates and times, which we can identify by noting that the narratives and visions in the book correspond to the years of the current ringing king in Babylon, all the way from Nebuchadnezzar to the eventual Persian king Cyrus in 539, who reigned after Babylon fell to the Persians. I've included a very helpful chart called Timeline of Daniel that lays out that relation between each of the chapters, the ruling uh, Babylonian king, the year, and then the connection to the Jewish kings back in Jerusalem. Now, from a literary standpoint, Daniel has a number of very unique but important features which, if considered, will help us interpret the book correctly. The most obvious is that the book of Daniel is divided into two halves. The first half, the first six chapters, contain narratives from the lives of Daniel and his three friends while in Babylon. In fact, one writer very helpfully describes Daniel's circumstances in his perspective as follows. So I'm, I'm quoting. The first six chapters are deceptively simple stories of faith under pressure. Daniel and his three friends have been forced to leave their homeland, Israel, and settle in the Babylonian king's palace. They are compelled to learn foreign ways in preparation to serve the government, which has made a hostile incursion against Israel and looms dangerously over the country of their birth. Each chapter brings new challenges, and each time they rise to meet the crisis. Now, it's one thing to be in exile. It's quite another to be made to serve that same government that's going to destroy your nation's capital, Jerusalem, and the center of your nation's religion, history, and culture, the temple. And so Daniel's personal circumstances are going to be very difficult, and yet throughout, he remains faithful to Yahweh. The second half of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, contain four apocalyptic visions. One in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and a much more complex vision in chapters 10 to 12. 
Daniel chapters 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic, which is the royal language of the Hebrew court. It's very similar to Hebrew, and it's the language most likely spoken by Jesus. Yet these chapters have a Hebrew introduction, chapter 1. Chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew with an Aramaic introduction in chapter 7. Now, this points us in the direction of a very carefully arranged and composed book with a very intricate and detailed interlocking chiastic structure. Hang on, I'll explain that in a minute. For each of the two halves of the prophecy. I've given you a chart that explains how a chiasm works and why it matters before we go through the text of Daniel. A chiasm is simply an ancient literary device in which the author uses an inverted parallel to draw a conclusion or to make a point of emphasis. In a chiasm, the key point comes in the middle, not at the end. So in Daniel, we have a relation like A, then B, then C, then B, then A. It's a parallel, and the conclusion comes in the middle, C and C prime on the chart, not as in Greco-Roman thought, A, therefore B, C. That means that the book of Daniel, the conclusion or literary high point, doesn't come at the end of the book, but in two earlier points within the prophecy, each corresponding to these two interlocking chiasms. So, the first high point is God's judgment upon two pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in 4 to 6. That's C and C prime on the chart. With the restoration of Jerusalem in chapter 9, E being the climax of the second chiasm. Now, in the generations to follow, nothing would be more comforting to Jewish exiles and expatriates reading the prophecy of Daniel than to realize from that first chiasm that Yahweh foretells the destruction of the very same empire he used to bring judgment upon Israel, Babylon. God used the Babylonians to judge Israel, but God is going to wipe the Babylonians off the face of the earth. And in the second chiasm, we learn that the future hinge of redemptive history is still going to turn on the city of Jerusalem, meaning that the Jewish people must be back in the land and that the temple is going to be rebuilt after the exile. Now, while we must keep in mind the overarching theme of Daniel's prophecy, that God is sovereign over all of human history, even during times of calamity and disaster for God's people Israel, at the same time, Daniel himself is in exile, far from his home in Judah, struggling to remain faithful to Yahweh in the midst of the court of a thoroughly pagan king, who has conquered Daniel's people, sacked Jerusalem and the temple, leaving them in ruins. And that, too, is going to provide us with a very important source of application as we go along. In fact, as we consider the opening verses of Daniel this morning, we can't lose sight of the fact that this prophecy was given by Yahweh to a man who was essentially kidnapped from his home and from his family in his youth. And he's taken to a foreign land to be forcibly trained as a servant in a foreign court. Now, it's hard just on an existential level to imagine the horror that Daniel must have felt when taken captive. And what's going to happen to him? What about his family? What does the future hold? Is it death or or slavery? Now, there are times when we've all wondered about why bad things happen, as well as wondering about God's greater purposes for our lives, especially while we're in the midst of very difficult times. We think of the fiery trials that Peter mentions is typical of a life in exile. We saw that in our New Testament lesson. And no doubt Daniel's trial in the furnace, as we'll see in Daniel 3, is in Peter's mind when he's writing words of comfort to first century Christian exiles scattered throughout Asia Minor, away from their homes, because they were believers in Jesus. 
It's also vital that we notice early on an often overlooked but very important element in understanding the book of Daniel, and that's Daniel's own personal story and the strong connection he makes between himself and the Joseph story from Genesis 37, verse 1 through 50, verse 26. Now, thankfully, Reverend Compton spent several summers going through the Joseph story, so it should be familiar to us, and if it's not, you can listen to the sermons he gave on the, from the church website or get the CDs. It's a very helpful background for our study of Daniel. Because Daniel identifies himself with Joseph, and throughout his prophecy, he implies that he is, in a manner, a new Joseph. The comparisons between Daniel and Joseph are so strong as to be beyond, well beyond the bounds of coincidence. Just consider the following. Both men are taken against their wills to foreign countries. You can compare Daniel, uh, uh, Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36, with the opening verses of Daniel chapter 1, the first seven verses. Both Daniel and Joseph are given severe punishment because of their loyalty to Yahweh, but God's with them both in the midst of their respective ordeals. In fact, Yahweh even vindicates them both before their tormentors. Genesis 39 and Daniel 6. Both Joseph and Daniel become top advisors to pagan kings. Genesis 41-46 and the first six chapters of Daniel. Both interpret dreams of those two kings, especially those kings who play significant roles in Israel's history, the Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. So we see this in Genesis 41 and in Daniel chapters 2 and 4. Both men, even as believers in Yahweh, are eventually called to high office while serving pagans. Genesis 41, verses 39 through 45, and Daniel 2, verse 48, chapter 5, verse 29, and chapter 6, verses 2 through 3. And both men are described by the pagans they serve as having, quote, the spirit of the gods in them. Genesis 41, 38, and Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. The level of detail in common between the two counts is pretty amazing. Let me give you a sample or two. In Daniel 1, verse 20, in chapter 2, verse 2, Daniel, who's in Babylon, uses the same Egyptian loan word for magician, which Joseph uses in Genesis 41, verses 8 and 24. When that verb is used in Scripture, that word is used in Scripture, it's always used in an Egyptian context, except when Daniel uses it. And there are other instances. I'll give you just a couple. Daniel's use of the verb to interpret and the noun interpretation are used, by the, same way, used the same way by Joseph in Genesis chapters 40 and 41. And the same thing holds true with an expression, one spirit is troubled in Genesis 41 verse 8 and Daniel 2, verses 1 and 3. The comparison, which is obvious once it's pointed out, means that Daniel's prophecy is framed with the Joseph story clearly in his mind. On one level, Daniel does this to remind the exiles and those coming after them that his own experience as an exile in Babylon is very much like that of Joseph's exile in Egypt. God delivered Joseph while in the midst of great pressure to embrace pagan gods and practices just as God delivered Daniel. Daniel's point is to draw our attention to the fact that even as Joseph told his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so too God used Daniel for important purposes not immediately apparent to the reader. In the case of Daniel, perhaps it was he who counseled the new Persian king of Babylon, King Cyrus, 
to issue that decree to release the Jewish exiles so they might return to their ancient homeland in Judah or return to the area near Jerusalem as recounted in Ezra and Nehemiah. Is it an accident that it's Daniel who's at the right hand of the very king Cyrus who allows Daniel's people to return home to Jerusalem, taking with them the vessels once looted from the temple back in the days of Nebuchadnezzar as we read in the opening verses of Daniel? There are no accidents if God is sovereign over the affairs of people and nations. Now granted, nothing specific is said anywhere in the biblical text about Daniel's influence on Cyrus's decision to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. But is it a mere coincidence that just as the Israelites escaped from Egypt and the Pharaoh in the Exodus, taking with them much of Egypt's gold and silver, so too when the exiles returned to Jerusalem from Babylon in this new Exodus, they not only take their vessels from the temple, they take lots of Babylonian gold and silver back for use in the temple. Is Daniel echoing the Joseph story to make the point that God will bring all of this about so as to move Israel forward into a new period of redemptive history, one which will culminate in the coming of a Messiah, just as Israel's exodus from Egypt culminated in the birth of that nation? Now, I think it hardly a coincidence, and I think it clear that not only does Daniel see himself and his own circumstances in the Joseph story, which he himself knew well, but Daniel's role in redemptive history is much the same as Joseph's. For Daniel, a new exodus is coming, one that's going to take the exiled Jews home to Jerusalem and which will eventually lead to something even better, the coming of a Messiah. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to learn much more about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Every kid knows that from singing those Bible songs that used to come on cassette tape that the kids play over and over and over. Uh, And we're going to learn about their assimilation or the attempted assimilation in the Babylonian culture, along with their rise to prominence in the Babylonian court. And yet throughout, each of these men remain believers in Yahweh. And they remain faithful to God's word of promise as Yahweh's sovereign purpose for their own lives, as difficult as it may be, works itself out in day-to-day events. Well, what then do we take with us from this opening section of the book of Daniel? Well, the simple answer is that God is sovereign over all things, even disaster and calamity. And as we'll see throughout the book, Daniel's own circumstances reflect the struggle of a young believer in Yahweh being suddenly taken from his home, no doubt with this profound sense of fear and uncertainty. This is also part of Nebuchadnezzar's scheme, we'll see this more next week, to eliminate the next generation of potential leaders from among the Jews living in Judah. Such a plot is diabolical. But as students of Scripture know, this was also God's means of bringing the covenant curses upon unbelieving and idolatrous Israel, curses that are spelled out in Leviticus chapter 26. Daniel the youth is taken from his home, his family, he's made to serve his captors. Nebuchadnezzar the king is trying to subdue his enemies, who just happen to be Daniel's people, commanding his chief eunuch, bring some of the people of Israel. The overarching thing with Daniel's prophecy is that in all of this, God is accomplishing his purposes simultaneously on the level of world affairs and in the life of one young believing Jew named Daniel. As for the larger picture, God will use Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to bring judgment on Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. And at the same time, he'll raise up Daniel to be the one who's going to reveal, one, 
that God will judge those nations, the Babylonians, who hate and attack his people because they serve Yahweh. And secondly, God's judgment upon Israel is not going to be final. The exiles will return. Jerusalem and the temple will play an important role in preparing the way for the coming of a Messiah, a Messiah who is a descendant of David, who will rule over true Israel, and who will deal with the fundamental human problem, sin. This Messiah will suffer and die for us in our place. He will be raised from the dead for our justification. Daniel foretells this, and Jesus himself interprets the book of Daniel as pointing ahead to him and to his messianic mission. As for Daniel, the exiled youth far from home, he will remain faithful to Yahweh. And he'll do so in such a way as to resist the pagan influences and idolatry all around him while using the gifts and talents which God has given him for the well-being of the Babylonian people and the Jewish exiles whom he is serving as a counselor in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Daniel resists the temptations of paganism while he uses his skill and talent to thrive and succeed in what amount to the most difficult of circumstances as we're going to see. Now there's not a more important lesson for us to learn than the one we can learn from Daniel. How do we remain believers in Jesus Christ in the midst of a pagan and godless age all the while going about our lives in such an exemplary way that we force the pagans around us to acknowledge our God who's sovereign over all things. Whether that be the kidnapping of this young Jewish youth or the movement of armies of conquest by pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar or even the ups and downs and trials of our daily lives. Daniel reminds us that God is directing all of history to his appointed end. And all the while, he's with us in the person of Jesus, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, assuring us again and again and again that we are united to Jesus in his exile and exodus, in his death and resurrection, so that whatever befalls us is ultimately for our good, for God's glory, just as it was for Daniel and for Jesus, and as it will be for each one of us. Amen.